Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Jazzy, and this is Before the Script. Today, we're going to take a look behind the real-life events that inspired the cult classic, Scream. Now, before I jump in, I just want to remind you guys that when I talk about movies that have sequels and remakes, I'm discussing the original. Like with A Nightmare on Elm Street and The Exorcist, this next movie has multiple sequels and even has a remake that was just released earlier this year. So today, we're going over the original Scream movie from 1996. Let me paint a picture for those of you who weren't alive in the late 90s or are too young to remember it. Home phones were still the norm, as most adults didn't even have cell phones, let alone teenagers. Most phones didn't have caller ID either, where you can see the phone number that's calling you, so when you answered the phone, you had no idea who was on the other end of it. The world was viewed as a safer place than it is now, and parents were more willing to leave their kids home alone for extended periods of time if they had to work and leave town or go on a vacation. And it wasn't frowned upon or looked at as anything worth calling the authorities over. So keep these things in mind as we navigate this 26-year-old movie. We start off with a young Drew Barrymore, home alone and preparing for a night in while her parents are out. The phone rings, and after a brief exchange of who is this and what number are you trying to reach, she tells the stranger on the other end of the phone that he has the wrong number. She hangs up, and the phone rings again. It's the same man, and he says that he has the wrong number, but was calling to apologize. He says that he just wants to talk to her for a second, but she tells him there are 900 numbers for that and hangs up again. A short while later, she's making stovetop popcorn when the phone rings again. It's the same man, and this time he asks her why she doesn't want to talk to him. She then asks who he is, but he won't tell her his name unless she tells him hers. She won't, so he redirects. He can hear her shaking the jiffy pop, so he asks, what's that noise? Now he's able to keep her on the phone. She tells him that she's making popcorn, and he says he only eats popcorn when he's watching a movie. She tells him that she's getting ready to watch a scary movie, so he asks what her favorite is. After she tells him her favorite scary movie is Halloween, she wants to know what his favorite scary movie is. He tells her to guess. Now she starts casually walking around the house, locking the doors while the popcorn starts popping. Let's pause right there and talk about this house a little more, as its layout will come up again and it may be a bit confusing. At the front of the house, there is a long, narrow front porch. On the far right of that porch is the front door, and the porch extends all the way over to the left corner of the house. The house then recesses back a bit on the right side, where you can see a hallway that extends over to another wing of the house. The driveway pulls up in front of that wing of the house and closest to the side of the porch where the door is. Inside the house, you go into the front door and can hang a right to the hallway. That hallway appears to lead to the kitchen. If you go straight once coming through the door, you'll go into the living room where there's a back door that leads to the back patio area. Somewhere on the left side of the house, there's another door that leads out to the far left side of the house where you'll run into the front porch if you head towards the front of the house. Why am I telling you this? 
Well, if you watch the movie, you may be confused about the layout making no sense. Because it doesn't. And because we're about to run throughout the entire first floor of this home, and where she exits the inside does not match where she ends up outside. So bear with me. Oh, and almost all of the doors have see-through glass from top to bottom, and the halls and walls are windows top to bottom as well, so the man can see her every move. So, she guesses that his favorite movie is A Nightmare on Elm Street, and he tells her that he does like that movie. He then asks if she has a boyfriend, and she says no. He points out that she never told him her name, and she asks why he wants to know her name and he says it's because he wants to know who he's looking at. She stops dead in her tracks. What did you just say, she asks. He changes it and says, I want to know who I'm talking to. She points out that that's not what he said and goes to the nearest window, which is the door to her backyard. She turns on the outside light and looks out, but doesn't see anything. She then says she has to go as she double checks the lock on the door. And as she's about to hang up, his tone changes and he warns her, don't hang up on me. She hangs up anyway and heads back towards the kitchen. The man calls again and she answers. He tells her, I told you not to hang up on me. She asks what he wants and again he says to talk. She tells him to dial someone else and hangs up on him again. And of course, he calls right back. She shouts at him, but he shouts back, telling her that if she hangs up on him again, he's going to gut her like a fish. She asks if this is some sort of joke. He says it's more of a game. He then asks if she can handle that and calls her Blondie, and she realizes he wouldn't know what color her hair is if he couldn't really see her. She takes off running through the house, locking doors on the way, and then stops at the front door to look out the glass. Can you see me? He asks. She tells him she's about to call the cops, but he says they'd never make it in time because they're out in the middle of nowhere. She asks what he wants, and he says he wants to see what her insides look like. She freaks out and hangs up the phone again. Then someone rings her doorbell. She cries out, Who's there? And, I'm calling the cops. She picks the phone back up, and it rings in her hands. She answers, and he teases her about asking who's there, because if she loves horror movies, she should know that asking that is a death wish. She then tells him that she lied, she does have a boyfriend, and he's on his way, and will be there any second, so he better be gone by then. The man mocks her, though, and isn't the least bit concerned. His name wouldn't be Steve, would it? He asks her. How do you know his name, she asks, to which he tells her to turn on the patio light again. She does, and this time she sees her boyfriend duct taped to a chair in her backyard. First she goes to open the door to go to him, but the man on the phone tells her he wouldn't do that if he were her. She closes the door and locks it, and asks why he's doing this. He says he wants to play a game. He says he'll ask a question, and if she gets it right, Steve lives. He tells her that it's an easy game because the category is movie trivia, and gives her a warm-up question. Name the killer in Halloween, he says. He tells her she knows the answer and reminds her that it's her favorite movie. She answers correctly, and he tells her it's time for the real question. Now at this point she's hunched down in a corner near the patio door, begging him to leave them alone, 
and he tells her all she has to do is answer the question. The next question is, who's the killer in Friday the 13th? She hops up and screams Jason repeatedly, to which he responds that it's the wrong answer. Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, is the original killer. Jason doesn't show up until the sequel. But he tells her there's a bonus round for her. Unfortunately, Steve won't live to see it. She then hears squelching noises coming from Steve, and when she turns the patio light on again and looks out, she can see that he's been gutted, still duct taped to the chair. Now it's time for the bonus question. The question is, what door am I at? He tells her that if she answers correctly, she'll live. He says there are two main doors to her house, and he wants her to tell him which one he's at. She refuses to answer, and he throws a chair through the patio doors. She runs through the house and back to the kitchen where her popcorn has caught fire and created a cloud of smoke. She grabs a knife and sees the man run through the front door into her house. He's dressed in an all-black robe with a white screaming face mask. She goes out the side door into the left side of the yard and stands in a small corner where she can't be seen as she watches him search the house for her. Just then, she sees her parents' car driving down the road towards her house. She crawls from the corner along the side door, so not to be seen by the killer, but as soon as she stands up, she sees that he's right at the door. His back is turned to it, but of course, just then he turns around and sees her. He punches through the door's window and grabs the hand she's holding the knife with, taking it from her. She still has the phone in her other hand, though, and punches him with it. He falls back, letting go of her hand but keeping the knife, and she takes off running. By this point, the car is driving down their very long driveway. She gets to the far left corner of the house, but stands there and cries, hoping her parents sees her. As she stands there, the killer jumps out of a window and tackles her to the ground. As he falls, she's able to get back up and start running from him. But the killer gets up as well and is running right behind her. Before she can get too far, he catches up to her, covers her mouth, and stabs her in the chest. She falls to the ground and he gets on top of her. As he's on top of her, she manages to knock the knife out of his hand, so he starts choking her. She then knees him in the groin, causing him to fall over, and she turns over onto her stomach to see her parents. Her parents are now getting out of the car and walking to the front door, and it looks as if she may make it but the front door is on the far right corner of the porch. She gets up and starts a struggled run to the front porch. She has lost a lot of blood from the stab wound and is unable to scream because of the damage to her throat from being choked. You can actually see her standing at the left side of the porch trying to yell for her mom, but her parents are startled to discover that the front door is open so they don't see her. They go inside and finally the killer is able to finish the job. As her parents get inside the house and discover the scene, the killer, outside, flips her onto her back and raises the knife that he must have picked back up. She strains to raise her arm and pulls the mask off his face, but we don't see who it is. Inside the house, her father discovers the chair and the smashed patio door. Her mother discovers the popcorn that is still burning. They run around the house and scream for her, Casey, Casey, where are you? Now we know her name. But they can't find her anywhere. Her mother picks up the phone to dial 911, but can hear stabbing sounds on the other end of the receiver. 
Casey still has the phone in her hand and never hung up. Now, if you're too young to remember having a landline phone, all of the phones in a house are connected to one line. So if you pick up a phone and I pick up a phone in the same house, we can hear each other. And if you're in a phone call and I pick up another phone in the house, I can hear your conversation. So that's what Casey's mom was hearing. Casey's mom crying, she's here, oh my God, I can hear her, can be heard coming from the phone Casey has. Casey's father then goes to the phone her mom is listening through. They hear some strained breathing and grunting noises until the killer hangs the phone up and all that can be heard is the dead tone, something that happens when one party hangs up on the other. Casey's dad tells her mom to get in the car and drive down to the neighbor's house to call the police. As Casey's mom steps out of the front door, she screams. Casey has been gutted and hanged from the tree in their front yard. Cut to a new girl, played by Maeve Campbell, sitting at a computer in her room. This girl's name is Sydney. It's nighttime and Sydney is in her pajamas when she hears scraping outside her window. She goes to investigate and gets frightened and screams when her boyfriend grabs her shoulder. He climbed up her house to get in through her window. She tells him that her dad's in the other room and he can't be there, and just then her dad knocks and opens the door. This girl's closet door is right next to her room door, and because she has the closet door open, when her dad tries to barge into her room, her room door gets caught, getting the propped open closet door stuck behind the bedroom door's doorknob, so neither door can open. This will come up again later. Her dad wanted to check on her because he heard the scream. She fixes the closet door so neither door is stuck and lets her dad into the room. By then, her boyfriend has hidden behind her bed and doesn't get caught. While he's in there, her dad also tells her that he's about to go to bed and reminds her of his travel plans. He's leaving early in the morning to catch a flight for work and reminds her what hotel he's staying at. Again. This is in a time before almost all kids over the age of five had cell phones, and she would have needed to call the hotel to reach him if she needed him. After her dad leaves her room, she and her boyfriend, Billy, have a little chat. He wants to know why, after two years of dating, things have changed. He talks about how they started off hot and heavy, but they've never had sex, and what they did have has fizzled out. After a little on-top-of-the-clothes stuff, she stops him and reminds him that her dad is there. She then sends him off, and he tells her that he's not trying to rush her. He climbs back out of her window, and she turns around, looking upset by the exchange. The next morning, we see students walking up to the high school, where there are also cops and news vans out front. News reporters can be heard doing reports and interviews, asking if students are into the occult, and reporting on the murder of Casey and Steve. Sydney walks up and stares down one of the reporters, Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox. Just then, her friend Tatum, Rose McGowan, walks up. She asks Tatum what's going on, and Tatum tells her about Casey and Steve. She tells Sydney that the cops are interrogating the entire school because it's the worst crime they've seen since... but she doesn't say since what. Later, Sydney sits in class, staring at the empty seat that Casey used to sit in. Her teacher is handed a note by someone and tells Sydney that it's her turn. We cut to the principal's office where the sheriff is asking who's next and the principal tells him it's Sydney Prescott who was the daughter of, again, no one wants to say. Sydney walks in and greets the sheriff and his deputy, Dewey. 
They ask if she was close with Casey, but then the scene ends. Outside at lunch, Casey, Billy, and Tatum sit at the fountain with Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, played by Matthew Lillard, and another friend, Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy. They're talking to each other about what the cops asked them. Stu mentioned that they asked him if he likes to hunt, and asked if the cops asked the others that as well. The other guys say that they were asked that. When Tatum asked why they would have asked that, Randy says it's because the bodies were gutted. They go on to discuss that they didn't ask the girls that because there's no way a girl committed the murders, and Tatum argues that it's sexist. They argue about it lightly when an obviously upset Sydney asks how you gut someone. Stu tells her, She then asks him if he used to date Casey, and he says that he did for like two seconds. Randy then asks if the police are aware that Stu dated the victim and jokes that Stu killed the couple. He mentions slicing and dicing, which again makes Sydney visibly upset. They continue to joke about the murder with Randy, the movie buff of the group, quoting a movie. Sydney continues to be bothered by the discussion. Eventually, she kisses Billy goodbye and walks off. Later, at home, Sydney is on the phone with Tatum, double-checking that it's okay if she stays with her, as her dad will be gone for a week. She also says that with all the police and reporters around, it's like deja vu. Tatum tells her she's sure it's fine and that she'd be there to pick her up by 7. Casey gets her things together and sits down to watch some TV. As she's flipping through the channels, the only thing on any of the channels are reports about the two murders. She settles on one channel, where the reporter she stared down at school, Gail Weathers, is reporting. She mentions that it's not the first time that the small community has had such a tragedy, as just one year ago, Maureen Prescott was found raped and murdered. This was Sydney's mother. An upset Sydney turns the TV off and walks away from the TV. Bored, she goes and lays on a couch where she ends up falling asleep. She's awakened by a phone call at 7.15. It's Tatum calling to say that she's on her way and not to worry about her being late because she'll be there soon, but that she's stopping at the video store to pick up a movie first. They get off the phone and a few seconds later, the phone rings again. We hear that same creepy voice from before who spoke to Casey. Hello, Sydney. He toys with her a bit and states that it's a scary night with the murders. He said it's like right out of a horror movie, so she immediately assumes it's Randy and talks with the man as if he is Randy. He's asking what her favorite scary movie is and if she's alone in the house. She says that it's cliche of him and she's disappointed in him and he tells her it's not Randy. She asks who he is and he said the question isn't who, but where he is. He says he's calling from her front porch, but she doesn't believe him. She walks outside of course leaving the door open, and calls his bluff. He's not on her front porch. She then asks if he can see her right now, and he says he can. She sticks a finger in her nose and asks, so what am I doing right now? When he doesn't respond, she goes back to thinking it's Randy. Knowing that he works at the video store, she tells him to tell Tatum to hurry up and goes to hang up. That's when things change. The man on the other line shouts at her that if she hangs up, she'll die just like her mother did. Do you want to die? He asks. Your mother sure didn't. She runs back into the house and locks the door. But as she's looking out the front door window, the killer steps out of the coat closet right behind her. 
Again, he's dressed in a black Grim Reaper-type robe with a white, screaming face mask on. She turns and sees him, and he knocks her to the floor. A struggle ensues. She uses her feet to knock him down, but he manages to get on top of her. They tussle back and forth, and he bangs her head on the floor to discombobulate her. He runs the knife across her neck, then raises his arms to go for the stab. She regains her senses and kicks him in the gut, hard, knocking him down. She leaps up and unlocks the door. She tries to open the door, but she forgot that she had also fastened the door chain, so she's unable to pull the door open. Now the killer has gotten to his knees. Again, he tries to stab her, but she moves and he stabs the door. She starts running up the stairs, and he hops up and is running up right on her heels. She makes it to her room where she locks the door and does the trick with her closet door that I mentioned earlier to keep him from breaking in through the door, and it works. Though the killer is able to knock her locked door open, it gets caught on the closet door and he can't get in. He gets his arm through the crack in the door and swings the knife wildly, but can't reach her. She picks up her bedroom phone, but the killer had cut the phone line, so she was unable to make a call. So she goes over to her computer and messages 911 to alert the authorities. Just as the operator types out what is your emergency, the killer disappears. He is no longer at the door and she cannot see or hear him anywhere else. Just then, Billy comes in through the window. She's frightened, but he says he heard screaming and the front door is locked. She hugs him and tells him that the killer is in the house, and he consoles her, telling her that it's okay, he's gone. A cell phone then drops out of his pocket, and she suspects that it may be him. Remember, the killer must have been using a cell phone to call her from inside the house, and this was a time in which most people didn't have one. She takes off running, and he chases after her, calling her name and telling her to wait. She runs down the stairs and opens the front door, where she's then face to face with the scream mask. She screams, the officer who was holding the mask screams, and it's a hilarious moment. The officer is once again Deputy Dewey, played by David Arquette. He apologizes and says that he found the mask, then yells at his other officers to come on as he enters the house. They arrest Billy, and just then Tatum pulls up. Dewey tells her to leave, but Tatum says that Sydney is supposed to be staying with them that night. Tatum and Dewey are brother and sister, and Dewey obviously still lives at home. Tatum takes Sydney to one of the officer's cars, and Dewey hands the sheriff the mask and the robe the killer was wearing. He must have left them both outside the house. Just then, Gail Weathers pulls up in her news van. She hops out and sees Sydney being driven away in the police car, and starts asking Tatum questions. Tatum refuses to answer any questions, but tells Gail to leave Sydney alone. Down at the station, Dewey is trying to contact Sydney's dad, but they can't reach him at the hotel he was supposed to be at. Sydney is sitting in an open area, and Billy is able to see her from the sheriff's office, where he's being interrogated with his dad present. The sheriff tells Billy that he's going to hold him until he gets the phone records from the cellular that Billy was carrying, and Billy insists that he didn't make the calls. They walk Billy down to a holding cell, and he pleads with Sydney to tell them he didn't do this. Outside the station, the press has gathered, and Gail is denied entry into the jail. Tatum shows up to comfort Sydney, and the police figure out that they can't track the costume because they're sold at every store in the city. Dewey takes the girls out the back to avoid the media, where Gail has figured out to look. 
she and her cameraman start an interview with Sydney in which Sydney asks, how's the book? Gail tells her it's coming out later that year and that she'll send Sydney a copy and Sydney punches her in the face. Dewey grabs Sydney and takes her to the car and he and Tatum take her to their house. As Sydney and Tatum are talking in Tatum's room, someone calls Tatum's house for Sydney. She answers the phone and again, it's the killer. He tells her that she pointed out the wrong guy again. She asks who he is, and he promises she'd find out soon enough. The next morning, they're having breakfast and watching the news. The story being covered is, of course, Sydney's attack. They mention her mother's murder last year by the hands of a man named Cotton Weary, and stated that Sydney was the key witness against Cotton, and that Cotton was waiting an appeal to the death sentence. They turn off the TV, and Deputy Dewey tells Sydney that Billy's phone records were clean, so he was released. He also says that they're checking every cell phone record in the county for calls made to her and Casey, but that it would take some time. He drops the girls off at school, where news vans are waiting, and promises she's safe because it's school. She sees Gail's news van and walks up to her. Gail sees her coming and tells her to stop but Sydney says she just wants to talk. Gail orders the cameraman to start rolling and Sydney says she'll only talk off record. She tells Gail that she owes her that much and she owes her mother that as well. Gail tells Sydney that her mother's murder was the hottest court case last year and that someone was going to write a book about it. Sydney asks if it had to be Gail with all her lies and BS. Gail makes it clear that she still thinks that Sydney named the wrong man in the murder during the trial, Gail did a lot of stories saying that Sydney falsely identified Cotton. She also met with Cotton several times for his version of events. She believes that Cotton and Sydney's mother were having an affair, and that on the night of the murder, Cotton left his coat at her house. Sydney said that Cotton did it because she saw someone leaving in his coat, and Gail believes that the killer was someone else who put on Cotton's coat to frame him. So now all of our moving pieces are in order. We know why Sydney hates Gail Weathers. We have established the relationships between Sydney, Billy, Tatum, Stu, Dewey, and Randy. We know what happened to Sydney's mom and have a version of events in which she was sleeping with her alleged killer. And we know that no one is able to get a hold of Sydney's dad where he is supposed to be. I'll move through the rest of the movie more quickly. Tatum walks up to end the conversation between Sydney and Gail, and Sydney apologizes for punching Gail. Inside school, Tatum and Sydney are standing at their lockers, and Stu is checking himself out in Tatum's mirror. Sydney asks about Billy because she hasn't seen him yet, and one of the students runs yelling through the halls in a costume that looks just like the one the killer was wearing. Sydney runs off crying and bumps into Billy. She apologizes and tells him that she knows it wasn't him, and then he guilts her about sex, claiming that she'd rather accuse him of being a psycho killer than touch him. He tells her that her mother died a year ago and she's been different ever since, and it's time she gets over it. He says that his mother left him and his dad, and he's not hanging on to it still, so of course this doesn't go over well. They argue more, and she walks away. We cut into the principal's office where he's reprimanding two students wearing the Scream costumes. He expels them, and when they say it's not fair, he tells them that fair would be cutting them open and hanging them up, like Casey. 
In the bathroom, Sydney hides in a stall as she hears two girls talking about how she probably made up the attack because she's gone crazy after her mother's murder and decided to murder Casey and Steve herself. After those girls leave, Sydney comes out of her stall and hears someone calling her name. The killer is in the bathroom and attacks her once again. She runs out of the bathroom and gets away. Outside of the school, Gail chats up Dewey, flirting with him to get information about the case. He falls for it and flirts back and lets her know that they can't get a hold of Sydney's father. They then hear an announcement coming from the PA system. The principal announces that classes are canceled until further notice due to the recent events. The students leave and Stu walks with the girls, telling them that he's throwing a party at his house that night to celebrate. Back inside the school, the principal tries on one of the scream masks and does a little boo in the mirror, making fun of how ridiculous it looks. He then hears knocking on his office door, but when he answers, no one is there. This happens again and he goes around looking to see who's messing with him. He can't find anyone and goes back in his office, where the killer is waiting behind his door. He kills the principal. Back at Tatum's house, the two girls sit on the front porch. Tatum is asking Sydney if Cotton could possibly be innocent. She tells Sydney that the affair is possible because her dad was always out of town on business and that there were talks of other men as well. This obviously upsets Sydney, but Tatum tells her not to let it get to her. The girls go inside and you can see the killer walking through the trees by the house. At the video store, Randy is working and Stu comes up to him to ask about the party. Randy says he'll come because he gets off early since there's a citywide curfew. Randy talks to Stu about how he thinks Billy is the killer when he sees Billy in the store flirting with two other girls. He also asks Stu if he thinks Sydney will give him a chance now that Billy tried to kill her. Billy overhears and confronts him, but the situation quickly cools off. We cut to Dewey taking Sydney and Tatum to the store. Stu told them to get food for the party, and Dewey is pretty much escorting them everywhere at this point. Dewey sees the sheriff outside smoking and heads over to talk to him as the girls go in the store. The girls chat about whether or not Billy will be at the party, and you can see the killer following them around the store. Meanwhile, the sheriff is telling Dewey that the calls were made using the cell phone belonging to Sydney's father. Dewey asks if the phone could have been cloned, but because tomorrow is the anniversary of Sydney's mother's death, the sheriff believes her father is the killer. He tells Dewey that they'll keep the curfew in place, and if Sydney's father is not picked up tomorrow, they'll do a door-to-door -door search. He tells Dewey not to let Sydney out of his sight, so Dewey takes the girls to the party that night. Gail and her cameraman follow Dewey's car and show up to the party as well. Dewey spots Gail as she's getting out of the van and walks up to her. She tells him she's following the story and asks him what he's doing there. He tells her he's keeping an eye on things and that he's about to go into the party. She asks if she can go in too. He says yes and she stuffs a live feed camera under her jacket to sneak into the house. Inside the party, the kids are picking which scary movie to watch when the doorbell rings. Stu jumps up to answer the door and asks Tatum to get him another beer. Of course, it's Gail and Dewey at the door, and Tatum gets mad at her brother for bringing Gail and the party with him. Sydney pulls Dewey aside to ask if they've found her father yet, while Gail makes her way to the TV stand to plant her camera. 
Tatum storms off to the garage to get more beer for Stu, and she's followed by the killer. He locks her in there and closes the garage door, so she has no other way out. At first, she thinks it's Randy playing a joke on her, because everyone's blaming Randy. But as she tries to walk around him, he grabs her arm and cuts her with a knife. She drops the beer bottle she had grabbed and runs. She puts up a good fight, hitting him in the head with the freezer door, throwing beer bottles at him, nailing him in the face and gut, and flipping him onto the garage steps in an attempt to open the garage door. But it's all for naught. After the garage door fails to open, she tries to go out of the built-in doggy door, but the killer stands up and presses the button to open the garage door. Tatum is stuck in the doggy door and gets pulled up with the door, getting killed when it reaches the top. Gail heads out, as well as a good portion of the kids, and goes back to the news van. As she reaches it, the cameraman realizes there's about a 30 second delay in the live feed as he's still watching Gail leave the house on their monitors. Dewey then runs up to the news van to let Gail know that the sheriff called and they found Sydney's father's car abandoned in the woods nearby. He invites her to go look with him, and of course she goes with. At the house, Billy finally shows up to the party. He wants to talk to Sydney alone. Stu tells them to go upstairs to his parents' room, so they do. Sydney tells Billy that he's right and she needs to move on past her mother's death. She also lets him know that she's ready, so they proceed to have sex. Randy is downstairs watching a horror movie with the rest of the party and tells them the rules of surviving a horror movie. He tells them how you never say, I'll be right back, because you'll die, and how only a virgin can outrun a killer at the end, something Sydney no longer is. Stu says he's going to get more beer, and he'll be right back. <laughs> There's then a ring on the phone. Randy answers and lets the rest of the kids know that they found the principal's body gutted and hanged from the goalposts at the school's football field. All the rest of the kids head out to go see it before they cut the body down, and Randy stays on the couch to finish the movie. After nearly getting run over by the kids leaving the party, Dewey and Gail stumble upon Sydney's dad's car. Because it's so close to Stu's house, they assume her dad is at the party, and they run back to the house to check on the kids. Upstairs, Sydney and Billy are getting dressed. She asks Billy who he used his one phone call at the police station to contact, and he says he called his dad. She points out that the sheriff called his dad. She heard it, and he said that's because when he had called, he didn't get an answer. He then asks Sydney if she still thinks it's him, and she said no, but it would be a good way to throw her off if he used his one phone call in jail to call her at Tatum's house. He asks her what he has to do to prove that he's not a killer, and with perfect timing, the killer walks up right behind him. She screams for him to watch out, but it's too late. As he turns around, the killer starts stabbing Billy in the chest and abdomen. Billy turns around to face Sydney, calls out her name, reaches out to her, then falls down dead on the bed. Now the upstairs in this house is one big circle, so while Sydney runs away from him and locks the door between them, he meets her on the other side and blocks her off to access the stairs. She can't run out of the house, so she locks herself inside of another room and climbs out of the window. As she's hanging out of the window, the killer breaks in the room and grabs her arm. She struggles to get free and he pushes her off the part of the roof that she was standing on. 
She goes flying towards the ground, but the tarp covering Stu's family's boat breaks her fall. She rolls onto the ground and hops up to look at the window. The killer is no longer there. But then she notices the garage door and Tatum's body hanging from the doggy door. She runs off and heads to the news van that's still parked by the house with the cameraman in it. Downstairs, Randy is the last one left watching the movie. The killer walks up behind him and is getting ready to stab him, but he hears Sydney running through the yard screaming for help and turns his attention towards her. Sydney makes it to the news van and wakes the cameraman, who had fallen asleep. He lets her in the van, and she tells him that the killer is in the house and is after her. He says, no, there's a camera in the house, look, and with the 30 second delay, they can see the killer standing behind Randy, getting ready to stab him. The cameraman forgot about the delay and hops out of the van, only to have his neck slipped by the killer. Sydney escapes through the front of the van and runs back towards the house. Dewey and Gail finally make it back to the house. He tells her to go lock herself in the van and call for backup. He searches the house but can't find anyone. Gail looks for her cameraman and can't find him. The van door is wide open and then she notices she's standing in blood. She gets in the van and uses the van phone to call for help and Randy pops up next to her window. She beats Randy over the head with the phone and starts the van up. She then notices that something is on the windshield and she's unable to see out of it. She turns the wipers on and can tell that it's blood. She throws the van in reverse and when she hits the brakes, her cameraman's body falls from the roof right onto the windshield. As she pulls off, she's able to throw the body from the van but nearly runs Sydney over. Sydney, who is standing in the road waving her arms for help, startles Gail. Gail swerves to miss her and runs off the side of the road and into a tree. Sydney, who must not have actually ran back into the house after the cameraman was murdered, but stayed outside, now has no choice other than to head back to the house. As she's approaching the door, she sees Dewey stumbling out. She calls for him as he falls and she can see a knife in his back. She begins to weep when the killer steps into the doorway. She turns around to run as the killer pulls the knife out of Dewey's back and walks after her. She runs to Dewey's car and locks the doors just as the killer is trying to open them. She goes to start the car, but she doesn't have the keys and they're not in the ignition. But can you guess who does have the keys? That's right. As the killer shows her that he has the keys, he disappears under the car. He pops the trunk and enters the vehicle that way. As he's doing that, Dewey's radio goes off and Sydney hears dispatch speaking. She radios back that she needs help and gives them the address just before the killer grabs her from the back seat. She fights him off and runs back up to the house. A somehow injured Randy limps up towards Sydney and begs for help. He says he found Tatum and she's dead. She crouches over Dewey's body and gets the gun from his holster and points it at Randy. He tells her they have to get out of there when Stu comes running up behind him. Stu yells for her as well and says Randy did it and asks Sydney to give him the gun. Randy blames Stu, Stu blames Randy, and a confused Sydney backs into the house and locks them both out. Just then, a bloody Billy stumbles to the stairwell and calls out Sydney's name. She turns to see that he's still alive as he falls down the stairs. 
He says they have to go get help, but she tells him not to go outside because the killer's out there. He says it's fine and asks for the gun. She gives it to him and he opens the door. Randy immediately bursts through and again begs for help. He says that Stu has flipped out and gone mad. That's when Billy looks at him and says, we all go a little mad sometimes, and shoots Randy in the shoulder, sending him flying back. Billy then reveals that he wasn't stabbed, but is covered in corn syrup, not blood. As Sydney turns to run, she bumps right into Stu, who has found another way into the house. She asks him for help when he holds a voice changer up to his mouth and says, Surprise, Sydney. She pushes past him and tries to run through the kitchen, but Billy runs around the other side and cuts her off. Sydney tells them that they're both crazy and they'll never get away with this. Billy, who has handed the gun to Stu and picked up the knife, says to tell that to Cotton Weary. He says she'll never believe how easy Cotton was to frame. Stu says what is probably my favorite quote from all the Scream movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> there was fun. She asks why, and the boys tell her their motive and plan. Stu doesn't have a motive. He was in it with Billy. Billy, however, tells Sydney that her mother was sleeping with his father and is the reason that his mother moved away and abandoned him. Stu says he has a surprise for Sydney and sets the gun down on the counter. As Stu goes to get the surprise, Billy points out that it's after midnight and that they killed her mother exactly one year ago today. Stu comes back with his surprise and it's Sydney's father bound and gagged. Stu takes the voice changer and places it in her father's jacket pocket, then the cell phone, which he says he and Billy cloned. Billy tells Sydney that it's supposed to look like her father was set off by the anniversary of her mother's death and snapped. That he killed everyone and left him and Stu for dead, stabbed Sydney to death, and then shot himself in the head. They even take turns stabbing each other to show Sydney how they planned to look like they were victims of the killing spree as well, and Billy gets a little overzealous, stabbing Stu multiple times in the abdomen until Stu has to beg him to stop. Then Billy tells Stu to get the gun while he unties Sydney's dad. Stu goes to the counter to get the gun, but it's not where he left it. They're looking for it when Gail Weathers cocks the gun and points it at them. Billy said that he thought she was dead, and apparently Stu checked her after she crashed the news van and thought she was dead too. She tells them how she's going to foil their plan when Billy walks up on her. She tries to shoot, but the safety was still on. Billy takes the gun and kicks her out onto the porch and onto the ground. As he's about to put a bullet in her, Stu turns around to tease Sydney when he notices she's gone. Billy forgets about shooting Gail and instead runs to the kitchen to look for Sydney. Not only is Sydney gone, but so is her dad. Then the phone rings. It's Sydney with the voice changer asking if they want to play a game. She tells them that the name of the game is she called the police and reported them. Stu, who has started coughing up blood from his stabbing, sits down in a chair. Billy points the gun at him and tells him to get up and go find Sydney, but Stu can't get up and says he's dying. Billy looks around for Sydney and opens a closet door to search for her. Before he can open it all the way, she charges out at him, dressed in the killer's outfit, 
stabbing Billy twice with the sharp end of an umbrella. He falls to the ground. Sydney takes the mask off, and out of nowhere, Stu charges her. He rushes her back into the living room, and they flip over the couch and onto the floor. He ends up on top of her, but she bites his hand and hits him over the head with a nearby vase she grabbed. He falls to the ground, and she pushes the television onto his head, electrocuting him. She then goes back to the closet where Billy is laying and picks up the mask. Randy sits up and startles her, and Billy hops back up, punching Randy in the face and tackling Sydney to her back. He chokes her, but she pokes into one of his stab wounds to get him to stop. He grabs the knife and reaches up. Just as he's about to stab her, he's hit by gunshots. Gail has gotten the gun again and still isn't dead. Sydney helps Randy up and takes the gun from Gail. She then goes over to Billy to make sure he's dead. He jumps up at her and she shoots him in the head. Her dad then falls out of the closet, apparently she forgot that she left him in there, and she and Randy unbind him. Cut to the morning, when the cops and ambulance finally get there, and we see that Dewey is still alive, being loaded into the back of an ambulance, and Gail, who apparently has a new cameraman, is filming the scene, still bloodied and bruised from the night's events. And that's the end of the movie. Now there is so much more to this movie that I don't have time to go over, and this is one that I highly recommend that you watch. This movie throws in plenty of comical bits without being over-the-top ridiculous like the scary movie franchise, like when the killer's standing behind Randy, who is again played by Jamie Kennedy, as the character screams at the movie he's watching, Turn around, Jamie! Come on! The killer's right behind you! <laughs> Or when Billy gets mad after Sydney disappears and throws the phone, hitting a bleeding out stew in the back of the head with it. This is one of those horror films from my childhood that isn't very scary, but I absolutely love. And if you don't recognize at least half of those actors I mentioned, you need to watch more 90s movies. Make sure you watch the original, especially if you're thinking about checking out the new ones. So what events inspired this scary story? Find out after the break. Do you want to keep up with the latest in sports news and commentary from a fresh perspective? JD Sports Corner is a website that covers the NFL, NBA, WNBA, NHL, World Cup, and the Olympics, with new articles published regularly to give you your year-round fix of sports news. So if you're tired of getting your sports news from the same old commentators, pop over to jdsportscorner.com. That's J-D-S-P-O-R-T-S corner.com. Thank me later. And now back to the show. Warning, this next segment contains graphic details about the real abuse and death of several people. There are mentions of sexual assault, mutilation, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. The Gainesville Ripper murdered five students over the course of four days in Gainesville, Florida in August of 1990. All of these murders took place near the University of Florida campus. Born Daniel Harold Rowling, Danny was born in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1954 to Claudia and James Rowling. For most people, this is the happiest moment of their life, but Rowling's father never wanted children. From the moment he was born, his father told Danny that he was unwanted. 
According to witnesses, his father was verbally and physically abusive to him from the time he was an infant, even beating him when he just learned to crawl because he wasn't crawling properly. The abuse got even worse when Danny's little brother, Kevin, was born. His dad would beat Danny, Claudia, and Kevin for any reason. If Danny breathed wrong, he would be beaten. Literally, breathing set off Danny's father. Now you may be wondering how he was able to get away with this without anyone reporting it to the cops, and that's because his father was a cop. In one incident, he pinned Danny to the ground and handcuffed him, then had his police buddies take Danny away. Sources say that this was all because he was embarrassed of Danny, but also because it was a way to exert his dominance over him. His mother left several times, but always went back. When she was later asked why she always returned, she said that leaving him for good would have driven him off the deep end. Danny would go on to fail the third grade because of too many absences. They said this was due to illness, but there's no telling how much of it was due to abuse. His school counselor said that Danny suffered from an inferiority complex and that he had aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. At 11, Danny started playing guitar to cope with his abuse at home, but Danny's failing of the third grade had sent Claudia into a nervous breakdown, and shortly after this, she was committed after she attempted suicide. Music proved not to be enough to cope, and Danny then turned to drugs and alcohol. Throughout his teenage years, Danny struggled to fit in. He was caught peeping into a girl's window once. He was also arrested multiple times for armed robbery. He attempted to get his behavior under control by going to church and working, but church wasn't enough for him to maintain control of his behavior, and he had a hard time keeping a job, so he decided to enlist in the military. He joined the Air Force, but ended up being discharged after heavy drug use while enlisted. He would go on to marry a woman by the name of Omather Halco. They seemed to be leading a normal life together, but things took a turn after the birth of their daughter. He became abusive, and just four years into their marriage, his wife left him after he threatened to kill her. Danny then turned back to crime and raped a woman that looked like his ex-wife. He also killed a woman in a car accident in that same year, which only furthered his torment. He still had trouble holding down a job and continued committing armed robberies in Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama. He even managed to break out of prison on multiple occasions. After he lost his last job, something in Danny snapped. He left his job in a fit of rage and murdered three people. Tom Grissom, his daughter Julie Grissom, and her nephew Sean were all getting ready for dinner. Rowling attacked them in their home, murdering all three. While he didn't gut them and hang them from trees like in the movie, he did mutilate, clean, and pose Julie's body. He changed his identity to Michael Kennedy Jr. using papers that he stole from someone's home and headed to Florida. But before he left Louisiana, he shot his father in the head and the stomach. His father almost died but managed to survive, losing an eye. Rowling didn't go to Florida to start over and get away from his demons, though. Instead, he escalated his crimes. On August 5, 1990, Rowling broke into the home of a woman in Sarasota, Florida. He duct-taped her mouth and bound her arms. He then sexually assaulted her, and he let her live, but he was not caught. 
Shortly after, on August 24th of 1990, Rowling followed 17-year-old college roommates Sonia Larson and Christina Powell back to their apartment. He waited until they were asleep and broke in. Christina was asleep on the couch, and he left her there, going into Sonia's room to attack her first. He duct-taped her mouth shut and bound her hands before stabbing her to death. He then went back to where Christina was sleeping. He placed duct tape over her mouth and bound her as well. Then he cut her clothes off. He forced her to perform oral sex on him. Then he raped her, forced her to flip onto her stomach, and stabbed her five times in the back, killing her. He then went back to Sonia's room and raped her dead body. He cut off her nipples and kept one as a trophy. Before leaving the apartment, he posed the bodies in sexually provocative positions and took a shower. The next day, August 25th, Rowling took the life of his next victim. He broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Krista Hoyt and waited for her to return. When she arrived, he attacked her from behind, placing her in a chokehold. He then covered her mouth with duct tape and bound her wrists behind her back. He led her into her bedroom, where he cut her clothes off and raped her as well. As with Christina Powell, Rowling forced Krista onto her stomach, then stabbed her in the back, killing her. He then flipped her over and sliced her open from her pubic bone to her breastbone. He also cut off her nipples and placed them beside her. He left, only to return later after realizing that his wallet was missing following the attack. While back at the scene of the murder, Rowling cut off Hoyt's head and posed her upright on the edge of the bed. He then placed her head on a bookshelf across from the bed so that the head was looking at the body. The news of the three murders had gained a lot of attention across campus and in the media, but this didn't stop Rowling. Two days later, on August 27th, Rowling killed again. He broke into the apartment of 23-year-olds Tracy Pauls and Manny Taboda. He killed Taboda as he slept in his bed. Tracy could hear noises in Manny's room and went to investigate. She saw Rowling and asked him, You're the one, aren't you? He looked at her and responded, Yeah, I'm the one. Tracy went back to her room. She tried to barricade herself in, but Rowling was able to break through the door. He taped her mouth shut and bound her wrists. Again, he cut off her clothes and raped her, then turned her over and stabbed her in the back. Unlike the previous two attacks, he did not cut off her nipples or otherwise mutilate Paul's body. Authorities thought that Rowling was in danger of getting caught or somehow got interrupted. He did, however, pose Paul's body. He left Taboda in the same position he died in. The police had no leads and little physical evidence. Rowling would remove the duct tape from his victims' bodies and throw it away in dumpsters so he didn't leave behind fingerprints. He also cleaned the bodies to remove semen. The authorities were, however, able to get enough evidence to know that the killer had type B blood, even though they had no leads. They used the posing of the bodies and the pattern of the victims to try to pinpoint suspects. All of the victims were white brunettes with brown eyes, with the exception of Taboda. They also falsely identified two suspects, but eventually had to let them go. As a result, the university canceled classes for a week. Some students slept in groups, taking turns staying awake, so there was always someone to watch over them. 
some students took baseball bats with them everywhere for protection. Thousands of students left the campus, and about 700 students withdrew from the school or transferred to other schools out of fear for their lives. Because of the media attention that the murders in Florida had gotten, officers in Louisiana noted the similarities with the mutilation, cleaning, and posing of Julie Grissom's body. They notified the authorities in Florida about the triple murder that took place in Louisiana that had remained unsolved. They tested the DNA that was left at the crime scene in Louisiana and concluded that the killer from Louisiana also had type B blood. Just after they discovered this, they got a tip from Crime Stoppers. A woman named Cindy Juricic had called and advised them to look into Danny Rowling for the murders. Cindy and her husband attended church with Rowling back in Louisiana. She recalled statements that he made to the couple, very dark, disturbed statements, including an admission that he liked to stick knives into people. After the murders in Florida, Rowling went back to theft and robbery, leading authorities on a high-speed chase after robbing a gas station. He was thrown in jail just two weeks after the murders and was still there. So when officers followed the Crime Stoppers tip from Cindy, Rowling wasn't too hard to find. Not only were they able to determine that Rowling did have type B blood, but he admitted to the murders. It was believed that Rowling would try to maintain his innocence, but he pled guilty to five counts of murder. Rowling later claimed that he wanted to become a superstar like Ted Bundy, but was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and paraphilia while the defense was preparing for trial. Paraphilia is basically sexual interest in anything other than a consenting human partner, including humans who are deceased or do not consent, and inanimate objects. The defense tried to use his childhood and these mental illnesses to avoid the death penalty, but it did not work and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection in 1994. While in prison, Rowling did numerous interviews, got engaged, and was the subject of multiple books. On October 25, 2006, in front of an audience of 47 witnesses, Rowling was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. That was a tough one. It was actually really difficult to talk about the murders committed by Rowling, and it's why I don't cover true crime. These were incredibly horrific murders, and the reason we have to be careful with glamorizing serial killers. Remember Danny said he wanted to be a superstar like Ted Bundy. People lost their lives because even infamy is favorable in the eyes of a mentally deranged, violent person. Remember that the next time you want to turn on the next TV show based on a real-life serial killer. I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode. Don't forget to hit me up at jazzycasts at gmail.com. That's J-A-Z-Z-Y-C-A-S-T-S at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye for now.